Are you ready for the weekend yet? We have events, news, and a guest for you to enjoy this Lake Life weekend. Hi, welcome 2019. Thanks for tuning in again to our podcast uh, here recorded in Perham, Lakes Country. We are still taking a short uh, winter break. Uh, thanks for your understanding. We are having uh, a lot going on in the in the back burner here. We are publishing an all-new magazine. Uh, we are working on a new release for our website for easier navigation and more content for you. And we are also preparing for our event, the uh, Lake Life Weekend Expo, coming to downtown Fargo, March 22nd, 23rd. So. Um, we are pretty busy here and I appreciate your understanding. We will have a little rerun here for you um, from Greg Stumbo, coffee roaster from Fergus Falls with a nice uh, warm and cozy story. I thought uh, January is calling for uh, such um, uh, warm thoughts uh, and uh, it is brutal out. Uh, but we all know that. Um, good luck for the ice fishers. Uh, I know with those luxury fishing houses, you have heat and everything. So enjoy that. Um, if you do have some ideas for content, uh, please uh, feel free to email us to hello at lakelifeweekend.com. And we are glad uh, to connect with anybody in the area. We already have recorded some news stories. Um, They're uh, going to come up. Um, but we always appreciate you telling us what you would like to hear or what you would like to share. So I also want to shout out uh, a thank you for our sponsor, Choice Bank from Fargo. They have uh, partnered with us to uh, help uh, grow our platform with our magazine. And also they became title sponsor to our expo. So Choice Bank from Fargo will help us grow and communicate more lake life to you. Um, I don't want to keep this much longer, so lean back, uh, enjoy a cup of coffee with this interview with Greg Stumbo from Stambino Coffee. Have a wonderful weekend ahead. Yeah, welcome to our interview part. I'm here with uh, Greg Stambino of Stambino's Coffee Roasters from Fergus Falls. Hey, Greg. Hey, good afternoon, Dirk. Thank you for coming. And before we talk uh, coffee, before we speak uh, roasting beans and how you arrived uh, to start a business in Fergus Falls, Lakes Country, doing that, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, are you from Minnesota originally? Are you from Fergus Falls? Yeah, I, I am from the Red River Valley. I grew up in Moorhead, Minnesota. So real familiar with the lakes area. Um, my wife grew up in Fergus Falls. So that's kind of our roots there. And yeah, we've been making a home and a, and a life in Fergus Falls since about 1997. So, okay. Yeah. So we, you know, we both have family still in the area, and, and just have been able, fortunately, to take advantage of whatever the lakes area has to offer over the last 20 years. Yeah, and uh, before you uh, set foot uh, in Fergus Falls, did you leave Minnesota? Did you come back? Have you always been in Minnesota? Um, pretty much with the exception of about two years uh, when in 1995 we got married and lived in uh, Wisconsin. Okay. Sun Prairie, Madison area for a couple of years. So, okay. Yeah. And then you homesteaded again in Fergus Falls. <laughs> yeah. Started the family, had our daughter in Madison in 1997. 
and then um, just kind of felt the heartstrings pull, you know, back to the, like a lot of people, I think once you have a, a child, it seems to kind of pull your heartstrings a little bit closer to where you're, where more of your family members are and stuff yeah. too. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I But I understand we have a good community here. Yeah, absolutely. How do you become a coffee roaster and <laughs> when did you start that? business I uh, tell people that I literally started my uh, profession due to a pop-up ad oh really yeah because it was back in early 2000s and I was watching a documentary on PBS about some brothers and a family that had a coffee roasting operation in Miami that had emigrated from Cuba uh -huh. and so they had a website at the time and, and understand that time the websites were very rudimentary and it was very you know 2001 or 2002 I guess it was And so they directed your website, and I went to the website, and you know, at that time, the, the pop-up ads were just very, just kind of belligerent. So it was a pop-up, and the question was, did you know you could roast coffee at home? <laughs> and so I like, no, I didn't. And I <laughs> clicked on the button, and it directs you to a different website, opened a whole new browser, I think, too, and, and uh, it offered this, for sale, this home coffee roaster that was probably about the size of a popcorn popper. Uh -huh. And actually, I was digging through some old materials and found the original manual the other day of the Cafe Rosto was the, the home roaster that started me on this adventure, I guess. So, yeah. And that was 2001. So 2001, 2002. Yeah. So over 15 years ago when you got kind of like a home brewing story, yeah? you started? Oh, very much so. Yeah. And that's kind of how I equate it to people when I talk to is like you look back and historically roasting coffee in the home was as common as baking bread. You know, you'd go to the store and you'd buy green unroasted coffee and you'd roast it at home. It really wasn't until mass production, commercialization of canned coffees, you think Folgers, M&J, and Hills Brothers and all those, where they took that roasting out of the homeowner's hands and said, we can do the roasting for you. So then that's, you know, mass production and mass commercialization of canned coffees and stuff to make it easy for people to serve coffee at home so they wouldn't have to roast their own. And so, but over the last 20 years, There's really, it's kind of been romanticized again to where it's just like home brewing or, you know, artisan bakeries and, and different things like that. There's a real drive towards home coffee roasting and home brewing and stuff like that too. So it's right in that niche that we have. And so that's where I started roasting coffee at home. And it was literally two or three tablespoons of coffee beans at one time that I was roasting when we started. And from there, you know, I just kind of, would put it in little Gladlock bags and maybe give it to a couple friends here and there or whatever. And from that point, it's like, well, this is really good. And it's not like anything else I've really had before. So then you kind of have that idea. I was like, well, I wonder if I could sell this to somebody. <laughs> and then so I start talking to the right people. And by chance, I was visiting with my sister. And my sister had a friend who used to roast out in Dickinson. But he stopped roasting because he was working in oil fields. But he had a small commercial roaster that would roast five pounds at a time. And so then I connected with him, and that was 2003 or 2004. And it was an electric roaster that would, that was also, um, yeah, electric roaster, small drum roaster that would roast up to five pounds at a time. And I had that in my garage, and then we moved in 2002. So it actually was 2002. And literally started that roaster out of the basement of my house roasting five pounds of coffee at a time and buying small lots of coffee you know I'd order coffee once a month and I think it was maybe 20 pounds of green coffee at a time that I would roast and then just kind of you know sell it to friends kind of you know covertly or whatever and 
And of course, then you get to discussions, you got a circle of friends. And that's one thing I think you find most valuable in the lakes here is if you have a circle of friends that you can bounce ideas off, it really can help you plant seeds somewhere and start realizing, well, this could become this and this can become that and I can work with this person to get this done. And so we took advantage of those relationships and friendships and moved from our basement to a legal setup that was in the back of a building that's certified by the Department of Agriculture who oversees food processing and production. Started roasting as a business and then realized that with the first orders that we were getting in and the first orders were based on fundraisers. So we'd have fundraising groups go out and sell. And, and oh. I realized when it took me about 14 hours to roast and package 100 pounds of coffee that this is going to have to be a bigger operation than if I'm going to make it work. Because it was our the, the hours of the day and I was still working another job and stuff too and different things. So I was roasting literally in the middle of the night. And on our initial bags, one of our slogans was, Stamino's coffee roasted while you sleep. <laughs> because we we're, you know, just the hours of operation. So then through friend and a friend and got in somebody's hands and I went and visited with somebody about it. And they said, well, you should talk to our banker about it. And then I went and talked to the commercial lender banker and um, also worked with a small business development person out of Fergus Falls area that was really helpful because then you start to conceptualize and you're putting numbers on a spreadsheet. And then all of a sudden that hobby that you've been doing and roasting coffee, and even though you really enjoy it, all of a sudden when you put numbers on a spreadsheet together, you can start to conceptualize whether it's gonna actually make sense to be worthwhile to do it. So then we put the numbers down and Chip helped me through the numbers and I said, oh yeah, you know, maybe this would work. And then we put like a weird, you know, projections, one years, three years, five years, 10 years, and it was, um, valuable to have that information to basically be able to deal, deal with the risk of starting a business mm -hmm. because you can take that information to your bank and then your bank can say yeah you know we can give you the or loan you the money to do this so then in 2005 is really when we went full bore and bought the roaster that we have now and it's a roast coffee roaster that took us from five pounds per batch production to about 30. Mm -hmm. but we could roast the middle batches too so and right now we have that roaster and that roaster was built in Oklahoma City and we've been using it since March of 2005 mm -hmm. so and it's still meeting our production needs too and I don't have to roast in the middle of the night <laughs> you know I can get a beautiful afternoon off like today and go watch my son play baseball or watch our girls dance or do some different activities so it's really you know the investments we made over the last five years have really helped us with our quality of life and but still allowed us to engage with you know different people and relationships and meet new friends and still kind of build that business very organically where it's you know still you know day by day but at least there's a security in you know the way we've done it so far you're a good storyteller and i'm just <laughs> listening here and it's it's really fascinating because uh let me recap and ask some questions so um you uh used a pop-up uh, we were still using pop-ups and you had a hobby and then you grew your little production due to coincidence that you got a bigger machinery and then you converted the passion hobby the night shift thing uh, with the help of some friends into like a f like you had a business plan all of a sudden and if i was listening correctly uh, it's already past the 10-year plan so you succeeded the 10-year plan you're still using the machine that you but that you bought initially that bigger one and you have a you have a business now. You're feeding a family with it, like so. You make it sound so easy, and it's like, yeah, I'm roasting some coffee here, guys. And I, um, if you have tried it, it really is supposed to taste really good. Yeah. yeah. So you make it sound really easy, 
and it was probably not that easy but like how does that work? I mean, like you have 30 pounds per batch. Uh, explain a little bit more. How big? How many pounds a year do you roast well, and all those things? Yeah, well, you've really seen the pickup on the Midwestern or in the, <laughs> with that because it, is, it, it isn't that simple, and I get that. You know, it's <laughs> like you think of, but also I'm not one that's willing to be daunted by like the success rate of businesses is X percentage, and so many businesses out of this many business fail within five years and stuff too, and it's like, you know you, you try to raise a family and tell your kids you get out of it what you put into it and i realized that doing a lot of its luck and stuff too so but with the roaster what we wanted to do when we invested in it in 2005 is have something that we could grow into and so we were going knowing that we were going from that initial in the storefront we were probably roasting 100 pounds a week you know mm -hmm. so you figure and and 5,000 a year. Yeah, 5,000 a year at the most and stuff too. It's tough to even look at those numbers. And we still have bank statements from those days. And we was just like, you look at that and you can't believe that it's like, you think of it as like, how did we make it on that? And my wife will look at me and say, well, we didn't. You know, just like, so it's like, there's some hindsight and stuff too that you realize what you're getting into and stuff too. But, you know, once, um, once you start paying off your loans and realizing that you still have money after the loans are paid off and then you... You know, just we grow it incrementally. So, I mean, we're still working to maximize our roaster. You know, you look at the capacity of that, where if, if we could roast, it'll roast 30 pounds per batch. You know, we figure we could roast on the high side 100 pounds an hour if we needed to. And we could go 10 hours a day if we needed to. So you could go, we could roast realistically 1,000 pounds a day. Mm. Um, but also that's the other thing when you talk about quality of life and, and and business structure too i haven't been one that's wanted to just balloon and get as big as possible and sit hands off while so-and-so roasts and so-and-so goes out and sells and so-and-so manages this part of it and so-and-so does the accounting books on it too it's like i'm one that um maybe naively thinks that you know we can probably do 95 percent of the stuff that we need to do and then um, but it also gives us the security of knowing that it's like, you know what, this business is really ours. We're the ones that are doing this and we're really doing as, you know, as much as we want to do. You know, coffee is a different product, I think, than a lot of other things because once we get it, it's been, when we, in our hands, it's been harvested, processed, and, and it's ready to roast. But once we roast it, the shelf life really starts to deteriorate. And so we've had, um, you know, the market that we go after is, is a little different than a, a superstore or a big grocery store. You know, we want people to enjoy our copies within a couple weeks of it being roasted. So that necessitates a real hands-on approach to how we distribute and how we um, work with customers and how we train and, st and, and, and staffing and stuff on that side. So we haven't really um, been in a phase where we're just looking to sell as much coffee as possible. And, you know, and, and I don't see us really ever getting to that point. And mm -hmm. um, it's just because it's not in a, in a business model that, that we would see. You so know, you're very hands on. Like I visit you once in a while in Fergus Falls or I surprise you, I should say. And then you are <laughs> usually at the roaster and, and you are really you're hands on. You're pretty much a one man shop, right? Well, you my wife and I together. Well, like you're yeah. a family business. Yeah, family business. And we'll have a good example is within the last couple of weeks, we had a local service club that was out doing a fundraiser and sold upwards of 400 bags of coffee. So we get that order in and nothing that we produce, we don't produce anything of roasting coffee is our production. We don't roast any coffee until it's ordered, you know, mm -hmm. until we have an order in hand. So that also, you know, adds to a lot of stability too, because we know 
as orders come in when they got to go out and stuff too and we're not sitting on a large inventory of unroasted coffee because we order and and our importer is based out of the twin cities so we order coffee when we need additional supplies and then so we and we don't sit on a big inventory of roasted coffee because we only roast when orders come in so it's it, it's, it's that churn that keeps it fresh and keeps it the inventory is constantly rotating through, Highest so we're always aware of that. So, you know, we have a real hands-on aspect with the quality, and um, yeah, and we always are aware of what coffees we have in stock. You know, I select the coffees personally, roast them, sample them out, and see exactly how they taste, select a profile and stuff too. So there's very much an art to it too. And yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. First, first, uh, um, uh, a few thousand pounds a year, I, I suppose, because you started with five, and you must be. Yeah, we're succeeding. probably, I'd say, thirty to forty thousand okay. pounds a year is yeah. kind of what we've been projecting, yeah. I guess, for this year. So, how many? Like, where is your coffee enjoyable? Who consume? Like, uh, uh, right. how many uh, um, distribution points? And is it more uh, um, coffee shops, or is it also like consumer? Can people buy the bean? Um, grind it and enjoy at home? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Oh, we have, when we first started, that was the primary market was the home consumer. Mm -hmm. And so um, with the storefront we had at that time, it was very visible, very public, similar to what we have now. And people would literally walk in on a roast day of Thursday and they'd buy their coffee Friday morning and they'd be drinking it on the weekend. Mm -hmm. And we still really encouraged that. And that's um, that's still you know what I think we find the most joy in watching is somebody selecting coffees and and enjoying that and and um but now you know our target market has typically been that cafe consumer where people are serving coffee on site um, i was also a business partner at um, a startup in fergus called cafe 116 that opened in 2009 and i was a partner there for five years and we were very hand i was very hands-on with training staff and working on serving coffee and you know a little bit in the coffee presentation was very important to me because i felt like i had a taste of what the coffee i wanted the coffee to taste like whether it was in espresso form cappuccinos or brewed coffee and stuff too and it was successful and people really i think grabbed onto it and, and enjoyed that coffee flavor so it showed me i was like yeah this is a, this is the right way that we want to do this And so then in 2014, that's when we branched up to the Fargo market with the retail serving at our, we have a, a small coffee bar um, in downtown Fargo. And that's again, real coffee focused or coffee forward with espresso and brewed coffee and, and items like that. So it's, um, you know, we, as far as the wholesale market, we do boutique hotels, small cafes, retail outlets. Um, and, you know, so the people are going to be consuming it right on site And you know we have valuable partnerships that we've been fortunate to maintain over the last 10 years or 10 or 11 years in that Fargo-Moorhead area. So that, as that food scene and beer scene and wine scene and things kind of evolved there too, as a company on the coffee side, we're right in the middle of that too. So that's valuable um, for us, and we feel like it's like yeah, we fit right in. You know, mm -hmm. there's there's peers and there's friends, peers and, and network of people that really enjoy food, beer, wine coffee is right in there so that's you know encouraging too and that's one thing that you kind of saw in the trends within coffees you saw that kind of happen on the coast whether it was new york or west coast or something or seattle or portland where coffee is seen as a culinary item and that really has developed over the last 
you know, 10 years and stuff mm-hmm. in, in the, even in Otter Tail County when we opened up with a cafe and serving great food items, breakfast items with the coffee. And now you have, you know, really great coffee available that was frankly never available 10 years ago. Yes. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's like, we're just real happy to be a part of it. We kind of uh, model ourselves a little bit after a company called T-Source out of Twin Cities. And the founder, Bill Waddington, started the company. And his basis was, I really enjoy these teas, and I want other people to enjoy them too. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things. It's like you kind of lift things from different people and you get relationships over the years. And that's one thing I've always lifted too is like, well, yeah, I really enjoy these coffees. I want other people to enjoy them too. And that's kind of a, you know what we, what we try to strive for and have been fortunate over the last dozen years to really kind of connect with people. Yeah, no, I think you've been really successful. I go to Stambinos in downtown back in the Roberts Alley down there mm-hmm. uh, regularly myself too. Yeah, and I really like your coffees. That's actually Thank why you. I asked you to, <laughs> to <laughs> speak. You. No, it's So how, how many uh, distrib- do you sell out of state? I mean, not Fargo, okay, but do you have like hotels? Uh, where is your furthest distribution? Yeah, we're primarily regional. Um, the, the reach that we have that's not regional has been thanks to the internet internet sure. sales and that's really just over the last 15 months oh. developed there so we're you know we have every day we'll have orders coming in that are going to california new york really? texas florida yeah it's just it's something that we've been able to take advantage of and and you know you always wonder how does somebody in texas hear Find about you. coffee or yeah exactly and that's you know it, but then it's like who knew when i clicked on that pop-up <laughs> ad in 2001 or two that i'd be here talking with you you know, it's just like it's 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 kind of a serendipitous or whatever you want to call it that yeah people find out about it and they're and with coffee they're willing to try yeah and so that's where the sales and then we've got um, an so offer. you have consumer sales from east coast to west coast north south everywhere yeah orders to orders, many many states yeah, yeah. fascinating <laughs> I know it's it fascinates me just thinking about it and I kind of think in terms of spreadsheets and logistics and stuff too so when you see these orders come in and I'm like wow. And then you think of this, and again, the Midwestern to me think is like, you know, it's like, wow, they like and they want to try your coffee. And then when they reorder the stuff, I'm thinking, well, geez. They must have liked it. Yeah, they must have <laughs> liked it. <laughs> and so there you go. You know, it's like, yeah, it's it's really a cool thing, too. It's like we know there are a lot of options for coffee out there. We're never going to be the only option for people. I don't want to be because part of it is like we try other people's coffee all the time. And so we are trying different roasters, different cafes and stuff too, because it, it, it's really important to measure yourself on, on, a, on a level like that and see, well, what are they doing? How does that taste in this coffee? And, and just, you know, the, and it's encouraged, you know, whether you're a chef, I know chefs do that, coffee people, beer people do that. So, and, uh, you know, that's kind of the fun thing that's developed over the last five to seven years with us too, is like, you kind of have this peer group that you can work with. And I know roasters, across the country that we can send samples to is like hey i tried this you know sample this out what do you think about it and then we'll get it in return and stuff too so you really are kind of always constantly peer evaluating and stuff too so that's really the neat thing that you'll see in specialty coffee yeah it's so fascinating listening to you and actually thinking about all that we have those the craft beer uh, movement now we have the distilleries uh, uh, and like even in germany but also especially here and now, yeah, there's a movement for uh, uh, coffee roasters, uh, and you described it really well. And isn't it interesting that our, despite the internet and, and despite the fact that we get as much information as we want uh, on a push button away, but still we are going away and a little bit from the 
mass production process. We want we want boutique. We want unique, and we want uh, handcrafted. That's oh, exactly. really yeah. That's really a super. I mean, maybe it's ongoing for maybe I'm five years old now, but I'm the more I listen, it's just like yeah, actually right. It's it's beautiful though to see yeah. in this fast paced life that we live we actually have where we settle down slow down and say yeah let's try that coffee from minnesota mm -hmm. and there's an order coming from texas and they enjoy something handcrafted from our local it's beautiful yeah it and it's it's really a positive thing and it's uh yeah it's really amazing i mean to think about it and and, and, and especially in those terms you articulate it really well but it's like it makes you really think yeah <laughs> about it. it's like how you know you think of how the 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 magnitude of everything and yet you just shrink it down to the push of a button and you can order something from somebody you've never met before but that's kind of well maybe that person approaches things the same way i do so yeah it's pretty cool i think it's pretty cool too we live actually in beautiful times but one more question i have uh, for sure at least one the process i mean i've seen your machine i i the whole room smells uh, uh, beautifully um is there and, and you showed me some beans before and and you just described raw beans and then you roast it i mean obviously we're burning it or we're heating it or mm -hmm. so um is there like a recipe involved how difficult is it like can you lose a whole batch as a term a little bit technical consumer technical like, yeah. can you describe the process a little bit yeah oh i've lost batches and <laughs> which is either you know a perfect example is stuff that's out of your control and because um, as a roaster, you're really just trying to control the variables that you can control. And middle of roasting a batch, and a normal batch would take 12 to 15 minutes to roast. And I got 20 pounds of coffee in the roaster. And the roaster runs on natural gas with a burner and electric to turn the drum. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the middle of roasting a batch, power goes off. <gasps> Roaster's at capacity, it's halfway through. And no power, the drum's not turning, the burner's turned off. And it, it was really the first time in like nine years that that's ever happened, that the power completely went off. And the power was off for 45 minutes. And so it was like, yeah, kind of one of those things where you realize it's just, well, you know, that's something I can't control. And, it and was, you cannot reinitiate the process. And there's no way you could reinitiate it. Yeah. Done. Because with the roasting process, it's similar to, it'd be like if you had a cake in the oven and 20 minutes in, you're baking your cake and your child comes up and says, can you take me to soccer practice now? And then you take the cake out of the oven. And then you cannot you can't put yeah. it back in. No. Or the power goes out. I don't yeah, mean to yeah, say yeah, that kids yeah. are a distraction or anything yeah. like that. But if your oven goes off at home in the middle of cooking, sure. you don't end up eating what's in the oven. And the same thing with the coffee roasting is there's the parameters that we can control our temperature how much coffee goes into the roaster, and then we can control the energy that the roaster produces to do the work. So heat? It's heat, heat supply, which is coming from natural gas and a burner. So and how the recipes, like is the bean significant or is the top? The it's bean just is the most significant part of, in my way of doing it. I mean, there are so many different ways of roasting and there are different computer programs you can get that you can hook up to your roaster that monitors all this information. I tend to prefer the old spreadsheet where I write ink on paper and kind of chart it that way. Um, but it's sense of smell, sense of sight, sense of hearing, because it, the reactions that happen throughout the roasting process. 
but knowing each coffee before you roast it is one of the most important thing is you learn how it's processed and you kind of measure or estimate what the density of the bean is, how hard the bean is. And that is going to tell you the rate of energy that you put into the into the bean. So how hot and how intense the flame is going to be. Because mm-hmm. a bean that's typically higher grown beans are harder, denser beans. Well, the density of that allows you as a roaster to apply more intense heat. Mm-hmm. Beans grown at a lower level or processed in a different manner before I get them are a lower density. So in density, you're thinking of how much water and the mass of the bean. And we can estimate that by doing a couple calculations and measuring and stuff, weighing it out. So then those beans that are softer or lower density will require a different heat level. So that's really the, the main variables that I'll look at. But I still want to roast each of the coffees within 12 to 15 minutes for a full batch. And then you can look at, you know, there's French roast and Italian roast and medium roast and medium light roast and full city roast. So there's different ones. But what I look to do with each coffee is, well, before I put it in the roaster, how is this coffee going to be consumed? You know, who's going to be drinking it and how is it going to be prepared? And so if I look at a a filter drip or a drip coffee or a batch pour or a pour over, I'm going to roast that coffee with the heat and time parameters a little bit different than a coffee that would go in to be brewed as espresso. Hmm. You know, espresso isn't necessarily a, a type of coffee, but it's a brewing method. And because of the brewing method and the nature of it, the pressurized water and the temperature and the, and the amount of contact time it has with the water, the coffee, you know, you want different flavor characteristics to come out. Because just as every coffee is different based on where it's grown, like a Brazilian coffee is gonna taste different than a coffee from Guatemala, you know that each coffee will taste different depending on how it's brewed. So it's, so there's, there's, you know, there's always like three pieces of the, uh, three legs to a chair or whatever, different pieces in a puzzle, whatever you mm-hmm. want to say it, you know, the synergy that has to happen. There's a corporate term you haven't heard in years, but synergy that has to happen with the roasting process, knowing what the end result should be. Interesting. Based on how it's brewed. Yeah. So uh, what do you think, or do you know what most of the consumer clients, do they have like a, French press uh, or the, do they put a filter because I think the filter actually invented by Melita yep. uh, a lady from Berlin uh, Germany uh, she invented the coffee filter but that takes out the oils I learned right so the French press is actually preserving the oils into the coffee which are transmitter of taste yeah the so filter yeah the filter that's in there and exactly right I if I'm gonna brew a cup of coffee I like to have the Melita filter cone filter a little finer ground coffee and then water at a 200 degree temperature and do that. But I like the filters that will capture some of that sediment and some of that oils, because I like a cleaner taste in coffee. I ah. like coffees, and when I say cleaner, it means that when you drink it and you kind of pause afterwards, you don't feel like grit on your tongue. You know, you don't feel like a, kind of a lingering, like almost like a coating. Mm. I like it to be just crisp and clean and then gone. I mean, in similar with beers, it's gonna be like a, a Pilsner or a, uh, a lager versus uh, a heavy IPA or, or something too. I mean, it's like you try to think of different things or if you're yeah. looking at foods and stuff too, it's like I'd rather have it be like white rice than brown rice, you know, because yeah. of the different flavors that it imparts and stuff too. So, but with espresso and French press coffee, neither one of them will have a paper filter and that paper acts to capture the sediment, the oils and stuff too that necessarily will make the cup murky or or whatever so but the espresso is just a a small basket with fine holes in it 
that's going to prevent all the grounds from coming out when you pressurize the coffee but you end up with a real concentrated beverage you know mm -hmm. essentially what espresso as brewed is so so if I put an order in for your beans, can I uh, like can I tell you what? Because you said it's so relevant how I brew it. So is there or like do you say, hey, th th these kinds of uh, coffees are more for this kind of brew? Like do you d determine it? I do. Yep. And we work with our restaurants that we work with on that, um, depending on how they're brewing. And we have a couple customers that serve French press is their coffee. So we work with a coffee that's a little heavier bodied, that has that kind of robustness to it. That you like with French press because you want those oils, you want the sediments, you want that stuff in there because it's going to be on the palate later. Um, and even on our website, yeah, we you try to get the different origins of coffee with flavor descriptors, how they taste, and then knowing that you know if you're going to brew it for espresso, we offer usually one coffee's espresso blend online, but also have a you know tag it with that this particular coffee tastes really good as espresso. So mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. if people want to explore a little bit that. Because you can brew any coffee any way, but it's really, ultimately, it ends up in the consumer's hand. It's like, you know what? I didn't like the way that coffee tastes. Mm -hmm. You know, and then they tried it as a different method. And they said, well, well, that coffee sure is different. And I've had that even at our shop, too, where I'll brew one coffee as espresso, and the person, oh, I don't really like that. And then we'll brew it as a different brew method, and they and they enjoy it much more. So it's it's hmm. so much of is is, I guess, subjective means mm -hmm. that you know it's up to the person to see decide what they what they determine tastes good or, or bad mm -hmm. so yeah. mm -hmm. very interesting maybe one one more question if i may um uh, the you said the herit uh, the source where it's from is so relevant so can you just bring some light into guatemalan versus brazilian or i don't know uh, uh, coffee beans mm -hmm. like what are taste characteristics or for the consumer ear yeah, tell absolutely. me a little bit. Well, all coffees, um, the interesting thing is all coffees, whether they're from Guatemala or Brazil, all originated from a plant that was originally growing in East Africa. So, and it's through the work of missionaries and traders and, and different people that have taken coffee from Africa to Yemen to Indonesia. So you're looking at Sumatra, Papua New Guinea, Java, deeper parts of Africa from Congo to Kenya. And then you look at the Danes and, and different ones that have worked with the seedlings and planted them in Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Mexico, throughout Central America, Colombia, South America, Brazil, Peru, Ecuador. So it all is derivative of plants that have grown out of Africa. But there are literally thousands of different varieties of coffee. You know, and each coffee is because you've heard the word robusta or arabica or there's another kind of that too and most of the specialty grade coffees come from arabica you know that they're usually higher grown coffees better quality smoother nicer tasting but within that cafe arabica there are thousands of different varieties so you're looking at and that's when the words like bourbon typica katura katai sl28 so there are so many varieties of that and that are growing so you look at that but then you look at historically Juan Valdez if you mention that name people think of a guy in his donkey climbing the mountains in Colombia so it's Colombia Brazil have been historically the top coffee some of the co top coffee volume producing countries in the world and so when you look at Colombia Brazil 
I always tell people they're kind of coffee tasting coffees. Most of the canned coffees over years, church coffees are coffees from Colombia, Brazil, some Central America, and then over the last generation, Vietnam. So now you look at Vietnam and Brazil are the top two coffee producing countries in the world. Really? Yep. And so you look at like Nescafe and Nestle and stuff own plantations kind of all over those countries. And so, you know, as coffee roasters, we're a very small sliver of a market, a massive market. And, um, you know, specialty coffee is maybe 15 to 20 percent of total consumption. So but when you look at your grocery store shelves and you go grab a cup of coffee at a convenience store, you know, we will never as a company, I think, sell as much coffee probably as a holiday, a couple holiday stations will do in a year. You know, we just just because that's the massive amount of coffees that those will produce, but they're also very much coffee drinking coffees, um, coffee tasting coffee. So it's smooth, it's nutty. You know, all the descriptors, mountain grown. It's I kind of laugh when a company presents it at your coffee as mountain grown because it's like, well, show me a coffee that's not mountain grown. You know, <laughs> it's like the simple terms that you can use, it's supreme coffee or whatever. And um, so, Colombia, Brazil, nutty butternut smooth you know mild I guess is usually what it is so but then when you go in higher elevations typically you get denser beans and you also get better quality coffees because the temperatures are stable stable up there weather patterns aren't changed quite as much and the sugars are able to develop a little bit different in the trees and then within specialty coffee you also have um, a real focus on cultivating those different varieties of coffee that we talked about and that you have coffees from Guatemala will have different flavors than in Brazil or Peru based on those cultivars and how they're processed. So then you're looking at flavors like raspberry or cherry, uh, grape, and different things. Not that those flavors are put into there, but just because of the soil that they draw from, similar to wines, they're gonna have flavors based on what the soil produces. So, and then Central and South America are most common flavors. And then you get over to Indonesia, so heavier bodied coffees, meaning when you drink it, it feels on your palate. So the Sumatra, Papua New Guinea, Java, Sulawesi, Salibs, there's, those coffees tend to be real heavy bodied and earthy. You know, so you can, I've had cups of coffee from Sumatra that taste almost like green peppers or rhubarb or brown sugar. So and you, and you change that, or you kind of compare that with the nuttiness that you get with South Americans. And then you get up to African coffees usually, and those are described as lighter bodied coffees. There's more acidity with them a lot of times. You know, there's a brightness to it. And you get coffee flavors we've had from Kenya that have um, tomato plant taste kind of flavor to it, aroma, um, black tea, you know, orange. I had, had over the years had probably our most requested coffee or the one that is most identifiable or whatever or referred to is a couple different coffees that we've gotten from Ethiopia that when you grind them and brew them, taste like blueberry. I mean, there's this dominant nine out of 10 blueberry. Blueberry pancake, blueberry syrup, it's just, it's and it's so identifiable, but it's real distinctive to a couple different kinds of coffee from certain growing regions, so. But otherwise you're looking at coffees with like orange zest and, and fruit and fruitiness and stuff too. So you look at, you know, overall, Central South American coffees taste like coffee that you're used to. It's social gatherings, nuttiness, smooth, buttery. And then you go Indonesian coffees, real heavy bodied, earthy, kind of palate cleansing type coffees. 
And then you get to African coffees, lighter bodied fruits, sweetness, zest, citrus, you know, Merlot, winey, different tastes and stuff too. So, And that's all in the bean. All in the it's bean. It's not edited. We don't it's edit. It's not edited. There's, I mean, I guess historically you could say the coffee, all coffees you drink are, are genetically modified because they're taken from seedlings and transferred with pollination and stuff like that. Different things to create different cultivars. But yeah, I don't add anything no. to it after you roast. Yeah. But during the roasting process, those flavors will emerge. Yeah. And there's different chemicals and compounds within coffee that will dissipate as you roast to it and expose it to heat, which allow other ones to develop. Interesting. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a natural, it's an agriculture product, so it's going to have sugars and stuff inside of it. Sure. And what you do, it's like with a mushroom. You, I don't necessarily like mushrooms raw, but if I put them in a pan and saute them, you know, the, 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 the flavors the break down and they emerge and stuff like that. So yeah. and same thing with potatoes and stuff too. And, you know, that's why an apple pie, you want the apple, apples cooked, you don't want to eat them raw. Yeah. Because, so, you know, the sugars develop and come forward. So. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. So. Really fascinating. So um, do you uh, usually stay in one bean? Uh, or like what I mean is like, do we blend coffees too? Like do we add a little bit Arabic uh, and then this, and then we grind them and then we have this, like a cuvee, like a, like a blend of a wine? Does that, does that exist? Oh yeah, absolutely. And because the bean densities are different, the heat transfer is going to be different when you roast it. So I always roast coffee separately. Like I'll roast one, a Brazil coffee. Yeah. And then I'll get it set aside and then I'll roast the coffee from Colombia. Yeah. And set that one aside. And then we taste them separately to make sure they're balanced and then we'll blend them together afterwards. So you roast them, sample them out, see how they taste and then blend them together. Huh. So and then you have your... There's a, is it like a recipe? It's basically, and then it's a new coffee. Yeah. yeah. And then our espresso is pretty much always blended between two or three different coffees, just because the nature of espresso and the pressurized water and what happens, you want balance in there. That's balance and sweetness is what you're going for. So typically, an espresso is not a special bean. It's a special roast. It's a brewing method. It's a brew. That's yeah, all it is. Because with espresso, I can take any coffee and brew it as espresso. I can. And that's like, yeah, you could take that can of 8 o'clock chock full of nuts off the store shelf, bring it home and brew it as espresso. And, and that's the brewing method. So it's, it's um, I always look at it. But that said, some coffees are going to taste better brewed that way than they would other ways. So, because yeah. we've had coffees that I brew and I really enjoy as espresso, but I, maybe I don't necessarily care for them when they're brewed as a drip brew or a French press or something. Ethiopian and Kenyan coffees typically... I'll use a paper filter to capture that sediment and oils because if I were to take that coffee and brew it as a French press, the cup is muddy, earthy, kind of sediment filled too. So what I end up tasting is the, almost like the coffee grounds instead of the coffee. Yeah. The smell is really good, but then the cup, it's kind of muted and, yeah. and murky. Yeah. Whereas a Sumatra or earthy coffee or some of the French roast stuff that we'll do, I like that is I want that in the cup. Yeah. So then I say, oh, if I want that in a cup, I'm going to brew it like a French press. Yeah. So, but if you take a real dark roast coffee and run it through a paper filter and you capture the sediment and oils and stuff like that, and you end up with a real thin cup of coffee that tastes like, you know, carbon or, or whatever, tastes like the roast rather than the coffee. So there's kind of a balance there and stuff too. That's really fascinating. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, and I can hear how passionate you are. Very <laughs> good. And that all coming from Lakes Country in Fergus Falls. Very cool. Yeah. So um, <laughs> closing, uh, um, 
I usually ask uh, about your lake life or what do you like about lake life living uh, in lakes country? What is your lake life like? Oh, it's, I think it's been in stages really. You know, you think of much of what we do as a family is revolves around our kids, what their activities and stuff are too. And it's like we've spent a lot of time over the last 10 years in state parks. You know, if you go to Maplewood State Park up yeah. by Pelican Rapids, our, our favorite is Glendalough State Park right north of Battle Lake. Okay. And these beautiful natural resources that somebody had the foresight to say that land should be protected for this purpose and stuff too. So we've used taken advantage of that when we think of lakes life. And then we also will take advantage of the food scene. You know, I talk about the food scene in Fargo a little bit too, but it's just fascinating driving through Lakes Country and going through Battle Lake and hitting a couple of restaurants there. And, and then you can go up by Vergas and hit a restaurant there and you go over by Pelican Rapids and there's that lovely little beach resort that looks like it is closed or something, but he has the best cheeseburgers in the world and stuff too. So it's, it's always you look for the hidden stuff there that you kind of have to get off the track to find and whatnot. So. You know, we'd love to explore the, the lakes country, driving the, the county roads and highways and then just randomly taking a turn here or there to kind of see where you end up and stuff too and, and, and whatnot. It's kind of fascinating really to see that. And a lot of times you'll see some of the same people that you saw 20 years ago when you were doing the same thing. So that's pretty cool too. Yeah. Oh, cool. I love road trips myself. And you have to tell me about the cheeseburger place. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. That was really oh, interesting. Gosh, Dirk, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, have a wonderful weekend. Yes, you also. Thank you. Yeah, this was already our uh, newest episode of the Lake Life Weekend podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tune in again next week with another great guest and updates. Always check out our website, uh, lakelifeweekend.com. And if you have some comments, please feel free to email us at hello at lakelifeweekend.com. And uh, you have a wonderful weekend ahead. <laughs>